Hi, I'm Stuart Spinks and welcome to episode 113 of my podcast, Beekeeping Short and Sweet. Our honey extraction has begun, the sun continues to shine and we start moving bees back to their summer sites this weekend. Also, my queen rearing plans kick in, so do stay tuned. Beekeeping Short and Sweet, a beekeeping podcast for the inquisitive beekeeper with a short attention span. A beekeeper, in fact, just like me. I'm grateful to Honeypore Hives for sponsoring in part our podcast for this season. Honeypore Hives, as I'm sure you're aware, are Polly Langstroth Hives, and we're setting up an apiary full of their hives this season, courtesy of Honeypore. Check out their range of hives and other equipment on their website, and I'll leave links to all of the websites in the show notes as usual. Honeypore Hives, designed by beekeepers for beekeepers. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been an exciting week of beekeeping with a few heart-in-the-mouth moments with the new queens I was introducing last week. Work continues at the new unit to get everything organised and I've got a few very busy nights ahead of me moving bees off the oilseed rape at the weekend and back to their summer apiaries. So last week you'll recall I was introducing those new queens in cages into the newly created nukes. Well, on Saturday I went back to the 14 by 12 apiary to have a sneaky peek into the nuke boxes prior to shooting a video at the weekend. I'm glad to say everything worked really well. I had intended to check on just a couple of the nukes to see if the queens had been released, but then I got carried away and checked them all. I think we had about 14 or 15 caged queens at this apiary. I can't quite remember at the moment, but anyway, they had all been released and were all alive and well, and I actually saw each and every one of them, which is a bit of a rarity, but it worked out really well. Of the 14, or however many it is, I saw eggs in all but three of the nukes, and I'm hoping that the last three queens will start laying in due course, and that when I go back to inspect them again, I'll have a 100% introduction success rate. So I'm really pleased with that. The queen cages actually worked really well, I have to say. I was a little nervous at seeing the workers head out of the escape tab and then watch the queen as she also tried to force herself through the narrow gap. But the design worked really well, and the bees in the nukes chewed through the fondant and released the queens in textbook style. I still have to come over to the alpaca farm to check on the nukes I created there. Those are the ones that give me the greatest concern. They're the ones that I made up from frames straight out of the queen right colony and then put the caged queens straight in. I do still think I've made a blunder there, but who knows, maybe it will all be just fine. We've had no rain at all in the last week and some very sunny, warm days. While I was at the alpaca farm, the farm owner stopped me for a chat and said that a couple of her alpacas had been stung because bees were congregating around the water troughs where the alpacas get their drinking water from. And it occurred to me to mention today that water is an essential part of colony life in a beehive, and it would be prudent to make sure your bees have access to a decent supply of water to use all year round. It appears right now they're using it to cool the hives, such are the daytime temperatures. If you evaporate water, you get a corresponding drop in temperature on the surface where the water was, and that can have the effect of keeping daytime brood box temperatures down and avoids the brood nest from overheating. 
It's likely that with the drop-off in nectar flow, the so-called June gap, the bees need something else in the hive to evaporate other than nectar, and so using water to do this fits with what might be going on in the beehive. On the subject of the June gap, while there are brambles in flower right now, the very earliest brambles have been flowering for a week or so now, it's still likely that there's not enough forage to keep a large colony fed, and unless you've left them with some early season honey, they may find going really tough to the point of colony starvation. This is where brood nest inspections are important, not just for checking that the colony isn't going to swarm or for looking at the health of the colony. When you inspect, you should also make a mental note of where the colony is storing its honey and pollen. I've had colonies bursting out of the brood box with wall-to-wall brood, yet not a drop of pollen or honey stored in any of those frames. If I'd taken all the supers off them, they would surely have starved over the course of a week. The issue of removing all supers is not normally a problem, as the way I add supers means the bottom super is usually only partially filled. It's probably not ripe enough yet to be extracted and can be left on the hive providing necessary food stores. Just in case you're unfamiliar with the way to add supers, I always add new supers beneath the existing ones. That means the workers have to move across the frames, be it foundation or previously drawn comb, and by doing so, they tend to be more inclined to use the frames rather than ignoring them completely, as they have on some occasions. On that point, now is not really a great time to be adding supers. The lack of forage means the bees just don't have any excess to put into empty supers, and they will more than likely sit on top of the brood box being ignored. Of course, all the usual rules apply here. Your local conditions might mean that, in fact, you do have the need for a super and the bees will use it. You must be guided by what you see happening within your hive, and if the brood box is getting clogged up with nectar to the point that the queen has nowhere to lay eggs, then perhaps a super is the right way forward. That said, this week for sure the weather is on the change, and with it being cooler, the bees will no doubt start to eat their way through the stores they have ready just for such an occasion, and that's fine. The drop in forage won't last for long, and if we get a reasonable amount of rainfall, it will really boost the amount of nectar available to the bees as our summer season gets underway. I'm not sure that here in Norfolk we're going to get a great deal of rain, but every little bit will be welcome. Interestingly, it always seems to rain just as our peony in the back garden flowers. It's a plant that has giant flowers, and it always seems to get a bashing right when it looks at its best. Changing the topic for a moment, the allotment is looking fantastic. Although I'm getting to the point where I'm happy to stop eating asparagus, there's only so much of that stuff I can eat. The good news is everything else is growing well. Unfortunately, it also means the weeds are catching up and I'm running out of time to spend any meaningful period pulling them out. Time is very short right now, as finally I'm extracting honey, we're removing supers this week. Hopefully it will all be done apart from the cleaning up by the time this podcast goes out. And following on from that, I'm out moving bees. I think I'll have to get the bees shifted in smaller batches this year. I really must get one of those hive lifts, the crane type that bolts onto the back of the truck. It would be so beneficial, but the costs currently are just too much, especially with the new unit just up and running. 
I'm pleased with the way that's coming along, actually. I plan to put in a stud wall to create a honey extraction room that I can keep nice and clean away from the day-to-day -day business. And I'm also hoping to be able to stock up on a few bits of kit that I can sell from the unit too. It will be good to be able to supply a few essentials, such as bee feed and maybe wax foundations and frames and things like that. I certainly don't want to become a shop, as it were, but it would be nice to open the unit once a week to local beekeepers who fancy dropping in to pick up some of their essential supplies and maybe share a coffee. In other news, I've had a very pleasant couple of hours at the Bluebell Apiary this week. It's always very peaceful down there, unless of course you happen to be pushing a petrol lawnmower around, as I was. The grass and weeds had grown rather faster than those at the allotment, and it was all my poor little petrol mower could do to chug through the long grass. I had to hold the front of the mower up and try to cut the tops off first, and then go around for a second time to cut it to more manageable heights. I need to take a spade and fork over to dig out the weeds and grasses that have taken hold in the area of wood chip that the bees are sighted on, but hopefully that won't take too long and we can then get the bees back on their plinths and ready for the summer flow. The petrol mower has been a worthwhile investment this year. It means I can keep everywhere tidy, which makes inspections a little bit easier. There's nothing worse than tripping over low-growing brambles when you're hot and bothered after a challenging series of inspections. The truck is in for yet more maintenance. This time it's the rear universal joint, whatever one of those is. It seems that when the clutch was replaced, it may have dislodged something at the rear end and that's what's causing the problem. I really don't understand it all. But it will be good to get that fixed as I really don't want it becoming a major problem because you know it will happen just at the height of the season when I can't be without my truck. Getting back to the beekeeping... We have to get over to the new locations to prepare the ground for our move away from the oilseed rape. We're heading to the south of Norwich this time, as I think I may have mentioned in a previous podcast. It's not a lot of work, but getting the site set up prior to moving the bees in makes it a lot easier, and certainly less stressful when the ground is level and the hive stands sit easily, rather than having to dig around trying to level out bone-dry ground in the early hours with colonies of bees sat on the back of the truck waiting to be set free. It does all mean some very long days and nights coming up as we prepare the hives to be moved. It's a simple enough task of strapping hives and blocking entrances, but it does need a little thought to ensure that it all runs smoothly. In other beekeeping news, we discovered an egg-laying worker colony this week. There's a video going up on Patreon if you'd like to see what it all looks like. Dealing with a colony that has suddenly switched in this way is pretty straightforward for me. I shake them out and remove the hive for cleaning. Egg-laying workers occur when a colony is hopelessly queenless and workers suddenly start laying eggs. I'm not sure if the reason for this is in a vain hope of keeping the colony alive or if it's an attempt to produce drones in order to try to pass on genetic material from the colony. Either way, workers compete with each other to lay eggs and you find multiple numbers of eggs laid in each cell. This isn't the same as a new queen laying two or three eggs in a cell as she gets started with her egg laying. This is all out of competition, and you'll find eggs upon eggs in the cells. I'll post a few pictures to show exactly what I mean. Egg laying workers usually, not always, but usually happen when I've split a colony and have a failed queen in one of the boxes. 
the simplest way to deal with it is to move the colony to another part of the apiary and shake out the bees, block up the entrance to the hive and move it away for clean-up. The bees will normally drift to another hive where any urge by the egg-laying workers is quickly suppressed by the dominant and overwhelming numbers of workers in the hive of bees that they've drifted into. This is one of the very few failed matings we've had this year, which is a huge change from last year, where we had many drone-laying queens. I'm about to set up the queen-rearing schedule for this year. Of all the various methods I've used, I think the easiest is grafting. It does take a little practice, but I think we get a decent number of successfully drawn queen cells from it to keep at it. I could switch to the Nico cage again, and that has worked well for us in the past, but I do like turning up at an apiary and working through the chosen donor hive, selecting a frame of the very youngest larvae to graft from, rather than going back to find that the queen hasn't started laying in the cage and having to delay. Another method I really like using is the alley method. I might try this again this year. This is the method of cutting a horizontal strip of young larvae from a frame and tying it into a bar on a frame before inserting it into the cell builder colony. If you leave one cell intact every third or fourth cell and crush down the rest, you end up with some really lovely evenly spaced queen cells that are a doddle to cut out and use in queenless mating use. It works best if you can use a frame with unwired foundation in it. So what I do is grab a drawn super frame with cut comb foundation that's been previously drawn and extracted and put that into the brood box. The queen quickly lays eggs into it and within a few days you have a frame of similarly aged young larvae to use in your queen cell production. In fact, talking about it here has me thinking I'd like to give this method another try. Look out for a video later in the month showing how we get on using this method. The key, as with most things in beekeeping, is preparation. Having the cell builder colony ready and bursting with bees is essential to producing decent queen cells. For those of you new to beekeeping, the cell builder colony is the queen cell builder colony. This is a hopelessly queenless colony that when given young larvae, they immediately go to work to produce queen cells. With the right mix of bees in this colony, you can produce far more queen cells than you could ever need, certainly as a hobbyist beekeeper. Keeping this colony fed with pollen substitute and syrup really helps produce lots of royal jelly and nice plump queen cells. One of the grafting cups I use for queen rearing is called the Jay-Z Beezy Queen Cup, and it's really useful in that it's an opaque plastic which allows you to see the amount of royal jelly inside the base beneath the extended queen cell. With the right cell builder colony, you'll find they produce far more royal jelly for each queen cell than the developing larvae inside could ever need, and that's perfect. As the larvae grows and the cell is capped, the sealed queen cells can be moved into mating nukes, and these can be set up however you want. It could be the smaller queen mating nukes, or it could be the two or three frame standard nukes, larger queenless nukes, or indeed you could add a queen cell to a hopelessly queenless full-size hive. There are pros and cons to most setups, and I'm sure you'll find one that works perfectly well for you. Personally, I've always struggled with the queen mating nukes, and much prefer to use a three-frame standard nuke for the job. This year, however, we're going to have another try with the queen mating nukes and see what happens. I have a range of different makes of queen mating nukes, so it'll be interesting to see how we get on with them. 
I'll report back, and of course, there'll be videos to watch as I stumble my way through the different techniques. Well, that's it for this week. Thanks for hanging around until the end of the podcast, and do keep the comments coming. And if you haven't yet signed up to the Patreon page, do take a look at that at www.patreon.com forward slash Norfolk Honey. I'm Stuart Spinks, and that was beekeeping short and sweet. Yeah.